so when, um, when I was in college, when I was in school, when I was in college, I was taught basically that the world and the universe was billions and billions and billions of years old. That, that is the, um, the, you know, that was pretty much what we were all taught. And we were basically taught that the universe was, it, it kind of created itself out of nothing. It kind of, it wasn't, and, and then, it, then it was, and here we are. And that's where we find ourselves. And that pretty much sums up my experience in the science building when I was in school and when I was in college. But at the same time, while I was being taught all of that, at the same time, I was also growing up in church. And so while I was growing up in church, I was taught in the beginning, God, right? I was taught about creation. I was taught about the flood. I was taught about this man by the name of Jesus who came to earth uh, to die for my sins, right? And so I was that kid, I was that student who was sitting in the massive sophomore, junior level, amphitheater style geology class that had a hundred plus students in it who was sitting there trying to hold each one of these worldviews hands at the same time and I'm sitting there trying to make sense of these two worldviews and I've got to be honest with you it was very difficult it, it was hard for me it was tough to make sense of these two worldviews because I was taught in college, I was taught in school, that the Bible and science could not go together. I was taught that they were polar opposites, and they was like the square peg and the round hole. You, you could not put the two things together. And so for me, the whole thing was a head-scratcher. I mean, it really, really was. It was difficult for me to reconcile these two worldviews. Now, maybe you were in the same boat as me. Maybe you experienced the same, uh, the same emotions and the same thoughts as me. Maybe not. Maybe you, you know, um, didn't think about it at all. Maybe you just kind of rocked on and it wasn't, wasn't that big a deal to you. I, I don't know. But for me, it was a head scratcher. And so the purpose of this series, the whole reason that we're, we're embarking on this five-week series is simply for us to take these, the opportunity to simply say, you know what, let's hit the pause button. And let's think about it. None of us were there. We weren't there. None of us were there when all of these things happened. And for us to know something beyond a shadow of a doubt, we really have to have an eyewitness account of that event happening. And God kind of gives us that. We kind of have uh, some details of, of God's version of things written down in this book of history called Genesis, the book of origins. We, we kind of have that. And, and while... Most of us have grown up with this, um, this viewpoint, this worldview of science telling us that the book of history in Genesis and science saying basically that's not true. In fact, they would say that this book of history, Genesis, is a myth. There are many scientists today that would say, well, not necessarily. They would actually argue and say that um, there is some areas in which this book of history, Genesis and Science, meet very, very good. They meet very comfortably. Um, they would say that if we take the same data points, we look at the same information, we look at the same uh, pieces of data, and we remove bias out of it, specifically the bias of time. We remove the bias of years, millions of years, billions of years, and we simply look at the data for what the data tells us, many scientists would say that science actually in many cases agrees with the historical account 
in the book of Genesis. Now, we are simply asking, or we're simply hoping that maybe, just maybe, at the end of this series, when we finish up this five-week, uh, this five-part series on the flood, we're just hoping that at the end of it, we can walk out of here and just simply say, you know what? Okay, maybe so. May I can see where what they are talking about could be possible. It's, it's plausible. We're not asking anyone to walk out of here at the end of this series and go, hey, what those guys are talking about, that's what I believe now. We're really not asking for that. We're simply asking for, is this plausible? Is this possible? Could this have been how it have happened? Because as Harley's already talked about in the first two weeks, this is not a salvation issue. Uh, you have absolutely no problem being a follower of Jesus, regardless of what you think about the age of the earth or your belief about the flood or creation or any of those things. Following Jesus has nothing to do with that. It's not a salvation issue. We're just asking for, is it possible? But to be able to answer that question, you really have to be a part of all five of these weeks. You have to really take each of these five weeks as part of a series because each week is vital on this journey of possibility. Now, as we've gotten started, of course, we've got this, this timeline. This Well, it's really a clothesline, really, but we're calling it a timeline because timeline sounds a lot cooler than clothesline. So we're going to call it a timeline. So on our timeline of events, of course, we start over here on, the, on this, well, my right, your left, and we start, of course, with creation. That's where we started in week one, creation, where in the beginning God, and God creates the earth, the moon, the sun, the, the, the stars, and plants, and animals. Of course, we have fish out front this morning. God created the fish, and he created people. And, and he did it over the course of seven days, this, this week this epoch in time. Harley talked about epochs in week one and how an epoch has a, a definite beginning and a definite ending and there were some really significant things that would have happened in that epoch in time. And if you didn't live during that epoch in time, we can't understand what life was like during that time period. So nobody was alive during that epoch that we call the creation epoch. We don't know. And then after that seventh day of creation, we move into this next epoch in time, which runs into this man by the name of Adam and, of course, Eve. And they live in this epoch of time where things are perfect. Adam and Eve are living in perfect relationship with one another. They're living in perfect relationship with God. They're living in perfect relationship with creation. This is an epoch in time that we can't understand. We don't know what it's like to live in perfect relationship with anything. And yet they, they did that. And that epoch in time is sometimes called the Edenic epoch because it happens when they're living in this garden in a place called Eden. And it lasts until, of course, they disobey God. And we have no idea how long that lasted. It could have been years. It could have been hundreds of years. We don't know. We don't know how long that, that time period was. But at the end of that epoch, we're ushered into this period of time after the fall and before the flood when Adam and Eve's children would have been born. This is when Cain would have killed Abel. This is when Adam and Eve's child Seth would have been born. And it's the time when a man by the name of Noah would have been born. And this would also have been a time of absolute violence and 
and anger and just, it would have been terrible. It would have been a violent time that the earth would have experienced during this epoch of time, post-fall, pre-flood. And it was so bad, apparently, on the earth that God basically said, you know what? We're shutting it down. We're closing it up. It's too bad. We are shutting the show down. We've got to close it up. And we know that this guy by the name of Noah, who was born into this epoch in time, we know that when Noah was 600 years old, that God told him to build an ark, and he told him to fill this ark with animals, plants and things. And We know that he told him to enter this ark, and we know that when Noah was 600 years old, and around the first or second month of his life, we know that a global worldwide flood of a cataclysmic level that we can't understand, we know it began, according to Genesis chapter 7. In fact, a, word, a phrase, waters of the deep broke up, is kind of the way it begins. And, and this uh, Harley last week talked about something called plate tectonics and earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanoes and, and just cataclysmic activity that we can't fathom on a scale that we can't fathom. And that's where we find ourselves today. That's where we pick up the story today. We're in the middle of this 150-day time frame when it is the most violent, cataclysmic, earth-changing geological event imaginable. In fact, we can't imagine it. 150 days. You're sitting there like, wait a second, hold on, time out. I thought the flood was 40 days and 40 nights. Children's Church lied to you. It lied to me. <laughs> That's the reason I was the kid in the geology class that was like, whoa, what? Because I had this 40 days and 40 nights mentality, you know, because that's what I was taught. Children's Church lied to us. It wasn't 40 days and 40 nights. It was, it was so much more than that. The initial process was a 150-day event. That's five months. To put that into context, COVID-19, this kind of COVID thing we're dealing with, it began... It began before mid-March, but we really started seeing the effects of it in mid-March when they shut schools down and everything. That's mid-March. Five months ago was mid-March. That's mid-March to mid-August. We have been experiencing the effects of COVID for five months. That's how long the initial events of this global, cataclysmic, worldwide, earth-changing, geologic event that we call the flood, that's how long it happened. Five months, 150 days. So that's where we pick it up. Genesis chapter 7, we're going to start reading in verse 17. It's going to be on the screen. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and lifted the ark so that it rose above the earth. So now this boat's floating. The waters surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the waters surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the, uh, the, mountains were covered as the waters surged above them more than 20 feet. Now for the next three verses... We're told that everything on the earth is dead. It's all gone. If it's not on the ark, or excuse me, everything on the ark, I'm sorry. If it's not on the ark, it's dead. It's gone. And then we jump to verse 24, a very important verse, and we see that according to Genesis 7, 24, it says, And the waters surged on the earth for 150 days. That word surged, surged is correct. Imagine, if you can, the, the largest, fastest, most violent river imaginable. And that doesn't touch it. 
I mean, think about it. What geologically might, because again, we're just on a journey of plausibility and possibility this morning. What geologically might have been happening during that 150-day period of time? How could the earth have been changing during that five months? How did the earth change during that five-month period of time? Now, before we kind of finish in that direction, I actually want to jump way to the end of our timeline. I want to get to the very end of our timeline of events. Um, and I actually want to go into many of your lifetime. So what we've been talking about to this point is thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the past. Right now, we're going to talk about something that happened in many of your time, uh, lifetime. didn't happen in my lifetime. I missed it by just a few years. But we're going to jump to the state of Washington. And we're going to jump to the date May 18, 1980, to exactly 17 seconds before 8.32 a.m. on May 18, 1980. Does anybody have any idea what happened 30, uh, 17 seconds before 8.32 a.m. on May 18, 1980? Anybody know? Mount, who, who said it? Mount St. Helens? Right there. Mount St. Helens, we have a picture on the screen. That is the day, the exact moment that Mount St. Helens erupted in the state of Washington. So I'm going to put this up on the, sc up on, up on the screen. I'm going to put it on the, uh, our timeline slash clothesline. We're even using closed pins, so it's official. That's right. That's, put that uh, picture back up there, McKinley, if you don't mind. That is the eruption of Mount St. Helens, 17 seconds before 8.32 a.m. on May 18, 1980, in Washington State, Mount St. Helens erupted. At that moment, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake started a nine-hour chain of events. Now, understand, this is not um, a singular event. A lot of stuff happened. This was just the initial catalyst that started this nine-hour chain of events right here. Causes the, you can go ahead and take it down now, McKinley. It caused the, the bulging north side of Mount St. Helens to literally slide down the mountain in what was the largest or is the largest debris avalanche in recorded history. And it runs for 10 miles down the side of Mount St. Helens. Now, this landslide very, very, very quickly is overtaken by a lateral volcanic eruption of gas and steam, okay? that will blow the top 1,700 feet off of Mount St. Helens. I had a really cool picture, and Media Shout didn't want to show it, and I'm sorry, but it's a really cool picture. And if you want to Google this, uh, do it. It's really cool. But before the eruption of Mount St. Helens and after the eruption of Mount St. Helens, if you've ever seen the picture, basically Mount St. Helens is now a huge crater where this eruption knocked 1,700 feet off of this mountain. And it blows it northward, all the debris and ash and everything, at about 300 miles an hour northward. Obviously, the explosion will level the landscape. I mean, everything will be flattened for about a 12-mile explosion path, everything. Uh, it's an estimated that about 10 million trees are going to be laid flat as a result of this explosion. It'll send an ash and debris cloud 18 miles into the upper atmosphere. Um, it flattens and kills everything in a 230-square-mile range, uh, up to 57 miles, uh, excuse me, 20 miles away from the eruption, there's going to be 57 people killed total. Most of them will die as a result of asphyxiation. 57 people killed as a result of this initial 
eruption. Now, at this point, the debris avalanche is rushing at about 100 miles per hour, and it plunges into Spirit Lake. Now, Spirit Lake was down the mountain, and it will sweep about 1 million of those 10 million flattened trees into the lake. That's Spirit Lake today. All of those trees are still in Spirit Lake. Many of them are actually on the bottom of Spirit Lake, but many of them are still floating on top of Spirit Lake. Those are some of the one million trees that are on top of Spirit uh, that were leveled by the eruption on top of Spirit Lake in this giant log mat, which interestingly enough is beginning to evidence is supporting beginning to create a coal bed underneath it, which is we don't have time to talk about, but. Pretty significant because it was believed that that cold bed should have taken thousands of years to create. We're seeing it happening inside of 40. So Spirit Lake, all of these trees are, are, are swept into the lake. And all of this makes the water level of Spirit Lake rise 800 feet above its normal level. We've got around 540, at this time, around 540 million tons of hot ash and hot debris uh, that are beginning to cover snow and glacier ice at this point in and around the mountain, on and around the mountain. And obviously what begins to happen is that ice and that snow begins to melt. When that ice and that snow begins to melt, we are now going to experience vast mud flows. And these mud flows are very, very significant because not only... Not only are they going to um, uh, completely reshape the landscape around them, not only do they completely reshape that, not only do they continue with destruction, um, but they are going to rush at roughly, nine, these mudflows will rush at roughly 90 miles an hour down the six major rivers along Mount St. Helens, and they will fill the valley below Mount St. Helens for 13 miles at a depth of about 150 feet. Now, you may be sitting there saying, I, you know what, I don't believe what he's saying. Google it. These are facts. You can find all of this information out on the Google because we saw it happen. This is a fact. This is not what we believe or perceive. This happened. We have witnessed it happen in our lifetime. The eruption of Mount St. Helens, understand, it's not a singular event. It's not like a one-time thing and it's done. It actually starts a chain reaction in a series of events that happens over a three-year period of time. So soon after the initial eruption, there's going to be another, even larger, major mudslide. Now, this mudslide's really cool because this mudslide is actually going to cut a, uh, a uh, 600 feet deep canyon out of solid rock. We've got another picture. That canyon was cut by a major mudslide following the eruption of Mount St. Helens. You say, wow, that must have taken a long time. One day. That was created in one day. It's called the Mini Grand Canyon. You say, I don't believe it. Google it. The Mini Grand Canyon, that 600 feet deep canyon was created in one day by a mudslide as a result of the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Within three years, we're going to have 600 feet of layered deposits in and around the valleys of Mount St. Helens. You say, what difference in layered deposits? What's, what's the significance? Well, each event in a series would be layered on top of the next. And so you have this layered strata feature so it's like you know one event and then a little bit of time would pass and another event and another event and it would just be layered on top of each other so what we witnessed 
in person, in real time, in most of your lifetime. What we witnessed at Mount St. Helens was a catastrophic event. Now, as the three-year process continues, we have something else really cool called catastrophic erosion that takes place. Catastrophic erosion. And what catastrophic erosion does is really cool because it will expose each one of those layered deposits for us to look at. So as that erosion takes place, and this is an agricultural community, we know what erosion is. And as that erosion would take place and it cuts through, kind of like what we saw with that mudslide that created the mini Grand Canyon, it would give us a side view of this strata rock formation that was created by these events over this three-year period of time. And it allowed us to study what was created. Because every event related to the eruption and the ensuing mud flows, it's like it left fingerprints on the landscape for us to study and for us to get data and for us to learn from in real time. Not assumed, not we think, not we theorize, not we hypothesize, but we know how this happened. And all of this occurred rapidly as a result of catastrophic events. As a result of something that happened 17 seconds after 8.32 a.m. on May 18, 1980, and a series of events that followed thereafter. So you're probably sitting there and thinking, I had no idea that I was going to come to geology class this morning. I didn't have a clue. Wow, here we are in science class. Awesome. What in the world does this have to do with the flood? How does looking at Mount St. Helens, uh, what does it tell us when we look you know, in relation to this flood of Genesis? It's interesting. Because what we see at Mount St. Helens looks really similar to what we see around the world. It looks strikingly similar to the rock formations that we see everywhere else in the world. It looks strikingly similar uh, to, the geo, uh, to, the, to the geologic, th- excuse me, the geographic things that we see in other places in the world. It, it looks very, very similar. It, it looks almost identical to other places around the globe. The difference is what we're told is according to the conventional model, the conventional story, we're told that all of those other places required millions and millions and in some cases billions of years to create. That's what we're told. And yet we know for 100% fact that these rock formations and strata of rock formation, layers, and, and, and again, many, the mini Grand Canyon, one day, right? 600 feet deep. We know for a fact Mount St. Helens happened in a, at most, three-year period of time, but in some cases, Hours. So what's the difference? What, why did this take days where this took billions of years? And what it comes down to is just really a difference in perspectives. And remember, all we're talking this morning is from a perspective of plausibility. Is it possible? Is it possible? The conventional model says that all of these geographic formations that we see around the world, they take millions of years. And um, because they say that time... Time is a magic wand. It's a magic wand. And it's necessary. You just have to have time. Pressure and time. Pressure and time. Pressure and time. Pressure and time. You put pressure and time together, and this is what you get. Pressure and time. They say time's the magic wand. And they say that 
the present erosion rates that we see today and the present sedimentary layer deposits that we see today, the way they are today, are the way that they have always been at the exact same rate, always and forever. And that's the key to the past. What we see today and the rates that we see today, that's the key to the past. The official term for that is something called uniformitarianism. If some of you are like science buffs, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that term. Uniformitarianism. The idea that things happen today at the same rate that they always have in a uniform manner. If you've ever heard the term the present is the key to the past, if you've ever heard that, that's what that is. That's the term, that is a term that is coined by the principle of uniformity, which is one that is embraced by modern geology and the conventional model. But just as we're on this journey of possibility, that's all we are, just a journey of plausibility, possibility, is it possible that instead of the present is the key to the past, is it possible instead that the catastrophic event is the key to the past? Is it possible, is it possible, not saying 100%, not saying this is, 100% fact, and if you disagree, you are wrong. Just, is it possible that what we saw at Mount St. Helens starting May 18, 1980 can help us understand some of the other formations that we see around the globe? Is it possible? Because if we were to go to Mount St. Helens in an information bubble, meaning we had no idea that the timeline fit here, we had no clue that these events happened, what, 40 years ago plus, a few months. We would look at what we saw and we would say, according to the conventional model, we'd say millions and millions and millions of years. But we know for a fact that it happened in minutes, hours, and certainly within a three-year period of time. So my question would be this. Do we have anything in Earth's past that could come close to Mount St. Helens' tenacity? and reshape a planet? Do we have anywhere in recorded history that could possibly offer up a clue as to why the earth could possibly, plausibly look the way it does? McKinley, put up Genesis chapter 7, verse 11 on the screen, if you don't mind. There was this guy named Noah, and in the 600th year of his life, all the sources of the watery depths burst forth. Now, I'm going to ask for a little bit of latitude. I'm going to ask you to give me some latitude because that's all the detail we're really given. All the sources of the watery depths burst forth. We're not given details. I would love details. I mean, wouldn't you love some details here? Wouldn't you love, you know, God to have said, and here's how I did it. I did this, and then I did this, and then that happened, and that happened, and that caused that to happen. And man, you should have seen what happened next. That would have been awesome. They didn't do that. So I'm going to ask for some, for some latitude about what all the sources of the watery depths burst forth could possibly have been. Because again, we're just on this journey of possibility. Could it have possibly been, as Harley hinted at last week, could it have possibly been 10,000 plus volcanoes? on the seafloor along the tectonic plate boundaries 
beginning to break apart and erupt larger than any volcanic eruption we have ever seen. Is it possible? The volcanic magnitude scale, volcano magnitude scale, goes up to an 8. That's the highest possible, according to science. Mount St. Helens, by the way, was a 5. Okay? goes up to an 8. If you were to take one single magnitude 8 volcano, you could take the entire nuclear arsenal of the United States, the entire nuclear arsenal of Russia, put them together, detonate them at the same time, and the energy created would be equivalent to one magnitude 8 volcano. I mean, we're talking plausibly on terms greater than anything imaginable. The breaking up of the tectonic plates all along the plate boundaries, 10,000 giant volcanic eruptions at the same time, very possibly began this flood. It very possibly began the catastrophic events where we find ourselves in this 150 days of this global cataclysmic worldwide flood. I mean, the flood wasn't just this big rain event for 40 days and 40 nights. And and that's shame on us for marginalizing this thing the way we have. Shame on us for making me sit in a geology class with the rains came down and the floods came up in my mind as I'm sitting here trying to hold these two worldviews in my hand. That's That's not it. I mean, in my mind, Noah and his family are on this boat sitting out there sunning in the trade winds, right, as they rock gently back and forth. That's, that's not close. This is a colossal, year-long, world-destroying event. We're talking earthquakes, uh, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, all on a scale we cannot comprehend. The earth would have groaned. It would have heaved. It would have pitched. And the world that Noah and his family would have discovered when they stepped off of the boat would have been nothing like the one that they would have remembered when they stepped on it. And of course, as we saw, again, using Mount St. Helens kind of as our real-time historical, we-know-what-it-looked-like example, there would have had to have been giant, vast mudflows that would have been created, and these mudflows would have been underwater, right? Makes sense. And we know one, without question what underwater mudflows look like because we, we see it today. Again, we saw it in Mount St. Helens. And we know, we know what an underwater mudflow looks like. And so we would have had underwater mudflows that would have been created as a result of this 150-day cataclysmic world-changing event. Now, we need to kind of change geography a little bit. Because I want to go to the Grand Canyon. Everybody knows the Grand Canyon, right? We were in Washington, now we're going to Arizona. We're in the Grand Canyon, the real Grand Canyon, not the mini one. The real Grand Canyon is a great example of what mud flows could have potentially done. Because 4,000 feet below the rim of the Grand Canyon, you're going to find a granite base. I look and look and look for a good pictorial example of this, and it's just it's hard to find a, a really good picture of it without a lot of other stuff that will confuse. Um, but at the very bottom of this, this 4,000 feet below the rim of the Grand Canyon, at the very bottom, there's a granite base, Ignatius Rock, granite base, not sedimentary, not deposited there by water. It is a granite base. Now, again, plausibility. It's possible this could have been creation-weak rock. There from the beginning, it's possible. 
And on top of the granite base is something really cool. If you give a rip at all about this kind of stuff. I think it's cool. It's something called the Great Unconformity. Anybody ever heard of the Great Unconformity? It's called the Great Unconformity. Another way to call the Great Unconformity is the Great We Have No Idea. Literally, scientists have no clue what the Great Unconformity is. They don't know. It's the Great we don't know what happened here. We know something happened. We know something major happened. We know something big happened. We know something significant happened right there. But man, we don't know what it was. The, the prevailing theory in the conventional story is something called snowball earth. That's, I'm just, that's the prevailing theory on how the great unconformity happened. But it's this, it's this real thin layer. Oh, it's continent-wide. It's not just in the Grand Canyon. There's great examples in the Grand Canyon. It's not just in the Great Canyon. Or in, in the Grand Canyon, it's continent-wide. It's actually intercontinental. You can see the Great Unconformity always on top of a granite base. You can see it in Europe. You can see it in the Middle East. You can see it in Africa. You can see it in other parts of the United States. You see it in Wyoming. We've got a picture. Kenley, can you put that picture up there? It's a great picture. Um, that's the Great Unconformity. That dotted was well, not the dotted line, literally, but. The dotted line, that's how, I mean, the bottom part is, is granite. And then above it is sedimentary rock, which we'll talk about. But in the middle, that's the great unconformity. Don't know how it got there. We just know it's there. Thank you, McKinley. And then on top of the great unconformity, um, you can see, in, back to the Grand Canyon, you can see crystal clear these layers of rock. And um, it, it's very, very clear. And they're always in this real, very pretty strata formation. Like they're layered. Like they've been deposited in layers. You know, it's very pretty, very obvious. The borders are very clear. It's, it's, it's impossible to miss. Especially if you're standing at certain points in the Grand Canyon at certain times of the day with the sun. It's, it's really very pretty. Um, and then on, so you've got the granite layer. Then you have the great unconformity. And on top of the great unconformity, continent-wide, it's always you have the next layer, something called tapete sandstone it's about three in the grand canyon it's about 350 feet thick tapete sandstone and then above the tapete sandstone you have another formation that's called bright angel shale and then above that you have something called muab limestone and all together these layers make something called the sac mega sequence and it's about a thousand feet thick now there's more above it but we're just kind of going to focus on that a thousand feet thick and it's it's interesting because each of these layers are found basically worldwide. They always follow the same pattern. On top of the granite and the great unconformity, you've got, uh, you've got sandstone. And then you've got shale and you have limestone. Always. Always that same order. Um, it always goes from a coarser material to a finer material. Finer, finer, finer until you get to limestone. It's a sequence, if you will, that's laid down in a very specific order exactly like what we have witnessed and like what we know for a fact happened with underwater mudflows. What, what happens? Sandstone, shale, limestone. Sandstone, shale, limestone. It's what we see in the Grand Canyon. It's what we see in Mount St. Helens. <laughs> this is so cool. You can actually even see some local particles inside of those rock layers. You go to those rock layers, and if you were to get on the microscopic level, you can find local particles all the way from the Great Smoky Mountains. You can find local particles from the Appalachian Mountains. You can find local particles from Mexico in the Grand Canyon. 
Again, I'm, this is not me making this up. This is conventional model geologists will agree with that. They're there. How in the world? How'd they get there? We know for a fact that underwater mudflows can carry debris and other areas thousands of miles, like this giant conveyor belt over continents. We know that that is plausible, laid down very rapidly. And that's another thing about these layers of rock. It, it almost looks like they were laid down rapidly, undisturbed. You know, each layer is just undisturbed, very little erosion. Exactly like what we see, not only at the Grand Canyon, but like what we see at Mount St. Helens. But the conventional story is very different. Because the conventional story tells us that there has to be a lot of time in between each one of those layers. They tell us that each layer... In that amount of time, it really can't be disturbed because, again, there's very little erosion in each layer. In fact, you remember that? McKinley, can you throw that great unconformity picture back up there again, please? If you can, if you can't, that's okay. But that great unconformity, remember how thin that was? The modern um, story, the conventional story, the conventional model, tells us that that layer represents between 100 million and 1 billion years of Earth history. Somewhere in the 100 million to 1 billion. Take a, take, yeah, call it half a billion if you want to. So that's a long time. And we're talking about the SAC mega sequence by itself is 1,000 feet thick. Now, there can't be any clay or so. There you go. I mean, we're, we're talking a very thin. That's between 100 million and 1 billion there can't be any clay or soil horizon exposed to the environment during that time because there's very little erosion that takes place during that time. There, there's not much chemical residue from millions of years showing because, again, there's very little... There's, the data really doesn't support that. But we know for a fact that Mount St. Helens and other cataclysmic events show us that millions and billions of years are not necessary to create these formations. Again... We're just on a journey of plausibility. That's all. Just a journey of plausibility. We're not trying to change minds. Honestly. What is not a journey of plausibility is the fact that you don't have to have millions of billions of years to create these formations. We know that for fact because Mount St. Helens shows it to us. Mount St. Helens shows us that time is not necessarily a magic wand. It's not necessarily the hero of our plot. And that's exactly what the conventional model requires. It's time. But Mount St. Helens showed us that time is not necessarily required. But that is not to say for one second that time is not significant. We're not saying time is not significant. I mean, when we think about it, time, time is the only truly irreplaceable thing that we have. It's really the only thing that we have that's irreplaceable. We can replace money. We can replace... Um, possessions, we, we replace pretty much anything, just about anything. But we can't replace time. Once it's gone, it's gone. Um, the proverb 27.1, Proverbs 27.1, I like the way this is put. Don't brag about tomorrow since you don't know what the day will bring. I mean, you think about it. The people on the earth at that time, uh, that they had no clue that their time was just about to come to an end when the flood was about to happen, they had no clue that that irreplaceable element of time was about to be shut down for them. I'm really no different when we think about it. I, I don't 
know. I don't know when my time is going to close. I don't know when my end is going to come. In Mark's gospel, um, and you can find this story in uh, Matthew and in Luke. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I, I just picked Mark because I thought it was a little more concise. But in Mark's gospel, um, which is probably relayed by Peter. Peter's probably telling the story. Mark's writing it down. But in Mark's gospel, probably as relayed by Peter, Mark is recording an account um, of Jesus telling his followers what to expect in the last days. So he's, it's, he's telling this on the Mount of Olives, so sometimes it's called the Olivet Prophecy or the Olivet Account, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. But he's, Jesus is kind of telling his, his followers, hey, this is what you need to expect when we get to the end of the world, so to speak. And at the end of the conversation, in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, this is what Jesus says. He's speaking to his followers. He says, however... No one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, much like with the flood. Nobody knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows, verse 33. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey guys, time is significant. It's a big deal. Don't waste it. Um. In, during that Olivet Discourse or Olivet Prophecy, when Jesus is talking to his followers on the Mount of Olives, uh, he, you know, he's talking about what to look for as the earth is coming to an end. And he, man, he goes through a laundry list of stuff. He talks about there's going to be, uh, there's going to be earthquakes and there, there's going to be war and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be uh, threats of war. There's going to be famine. There's going to be uh, false messiahs. You know, there's going to be a lot of stuff. It's going to get really bad. It's going to be really, really bad. And, and as followers of Jesus, we have a tendency, at least I do, I think, I have a tendency to look and to say, yeah, I heard that, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is coming back soon. And I know at least some of us do that because I read Facebook, right? You, know, you look at the memes on Facebook and you see that stuff all the time. Yeah, Jesus is coming soon. World's bad. World's terrible. World's awful. Everybody hates each other. We're beating each other up and everything. You know, it's we do that, and we have that tendency to say, man, Jesus is coming soon. The world's bad. Jesus is coming soon. The world's bad. Jesus is coming soon. The world is bad. And, and we look around today, or again, at least I do, we look around today and we see anger, we see hate, we see violence, we see turmoil, and, and immediately I think, whoo, I heard that. Get ready, y'all. <laughs> You ready? Jesus. Jesus about to come back. Y'all just, just hang on to you. Here it comes. And I have a tendency today to compare what I experienced today and the world that we experience today and compare it to the world that was before the flood. And as a follower of Jesus, I, I tend to kind of be like, hey, get ready. Jesus is about, something's about to happen. Something is about to happen. And that very well may be true. I am in no way, I don't want you to think I'm making light of that. I'm not saying that that is not necessarily the case. I, that's not the point. But we always, we always kind of have that attitude of, we always end that with, or at least I do, man, Jesus is coming back and, oh, by the way, we win. You know? <laughs> when Jesus comes back, it's on. We win. Um, 
But we always tend to miss a really big part of what Jesus teaches his followers during that Olivet Prophecy. We, we always miss, or at least I do, I, I keep saying we, I should say me, I always tend to ignore a big part of that Olivet Prophecy. We, we focus on the top part, War and rumor of war and earthquakes and famine and yada da da da. But nobody knows the time of the hour, so you know. But we we skip a very very important part, which is verses nine and ten. Which verse nine, Jesus tells his followers, he says, "But look, when all that happens, when all that all that goes down, you're gonna be you're gonna be persecuted. You're gonna be." You know, you're going to be in trouble. There's going to be some tough stuff that happens to you. But it's going to be okay because you're going to have the opportunity to tell people about me as a result of you guys getting in trouble. And then he adds the verse that is often overlooked by us followers of Jesus, which is Mark chapter 13, verse 10. And this is what it says. For the good news, good news is just another word for gospel, Jesus' story. The good news must first be preached to all nations. We love, I do, I love this, you know, hey man, Jesus is coming back and we win. You know, we, 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 we love that, or I do. But Jesus says before he comes back and before we win, the world has to hear the good news. The world has to hear the gospel first. And that's what at Stuttgart Harvest Church we really want to be about. We really, we've got some really, really good news to share. We, we, have, some, we have some news that can change people's lives. Um, we, we can't promise wealth. We can't promise freedom from pain. We can't promise constant happiness. We, we can't promise those things. In fact, we can, in some cases, promise the opposite. Um, but we can promise a satisfaction that comes in the peace that comes with knowing Jesus. But the only way that we are going to be able to accomplish that, you know, the whole world hearing the good news before Jesus comes back, which is a prerequisite, before we can do that, we've got to have some help. It's a team effort. It has to happen church-wide. It's got to happen with everybody. And so when we were trying to come up with what were some next steps, how in the world do you come up with next steps in connection with what we're talking about? What are next steps? So, you know, the whole world has to hear about Jesus. And so if you guys would be willing on, on your connection card, next steps this morning, would, would you be willing this week Will you help us share the good news this week by simply sharing your story? That's that simple. Just share your story. You don't have to. You, you don't have. To, it doesn't have to be theological. It doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything special. Just share your story. Will you help us share the good news by you simply sharing your story with somebody? that you are connected with. Would you be willing to do that this week? Share the good news by you sharing your story. And or, maybe you would do this, maybe you would do both of these things. Would you be willing this week or very soon, would you be willing for that person that 
you've kind of had on your mind, had on your heart, you've been praying for, that you're connected to, would you be willing to invite that person to Stuttgart Harvest Church for the next two weeks of this series? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This isn't a great series to start somebody out on because you really need all five parts for it to make sense. Um, got to start somewhere and I'll be honest we're going to talk about dinosaurs next week that'll be kind of cool um, would you be willing to invite them for the next couple of series and, or series and or to that community outreach that we have coming up at the end of September would you be willing to do one of those two things or maybe both this week because I mean we got some really 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 good news to share really good news to share but the truth is we have no idea how much time we have left to share it. So think about it. 